Thank you, everyone, for your patience there. Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah? We are making our way through this 11th of the 12 minor prophets. Today we're going to pick up in chapter 7. So go ahead and find that in your Bibles. Uh, if you're using a what we'll call a pew Bible, you'll, you'll notice the pages are listed there if you're not as familiar with where that is located. Well, there are, we enter into the second section of the book of Zechariah. There's three sections in this particular book. We've been spending quite a bit of time, uh, the first five, six weeks of our study now in this book, uh, working our way through that first section, which has to do with the various visions that Zechariah received. Remember, a discouraged people, God spoke to or ministered to Zechariah through these visions to present a message of encouragement to the people, and particularly to the two leaders of the people, the political leader, this fellow Zerubbabel, and the spiritual leader, Joshua, the high priest. Today we're going to consider, the, hopefully, the entirety of the second section of this book, and then uh, as we move forward from there, the third and final section, which has to do with a series of messages that, uh, like actual sermons, that Zechariah delivered uh, to the people. And so there's three sections in the book. Today we will be focused on that uh, second section. Chapters 7 and chapter 8. Now, this section is all related to a question, a question that's asked at the very beginning of chapter 7. And the, it, the question came from a delegation of believers. It, it tells us there in one of those opening verses that there was a group of people sent from the city of Bethel, Jewish people sent from the city of Bethel. They came to the priests, they came to some of the leaders, and they pose their particular question, and Zechariah there is going to give the answer. It starts in uh, chapter 7, verse 1. Let's read it. It says, Now in the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is the month of Chislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Regim Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priest of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep? and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years. Now that, that little phrase there, weep and abstain, it's referring to fasting. Should we continue to fast in the fifth month as we have done for so many years? Now as you look there, you'll notice in the first verse it talks about King Darius. Now remember, we, we've been introduced to him in some of our recent studies. King Darius was not a Jewish king. He was a king of the Medo-Persian Empire. We were introduced to him in our study of the book of Haggai, chapter 1, in two locations, and even in our study of this particular book, Zechariah, chapter 1, in a couple of locations. The Medo-Persian Empire, you remember, were the ones that replaced the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonians were ruling the world, the Medo-Persians defeated them. And since the Jews were captives of the Babylonians, now the, the Jews become captives of the Medo-Persians. That's the Darius whom we are speaking of here. And so it tells us that this event that we're about to look at was in the fourth year of King Darius. We know when that is. That was 518, uh, excuse me, 516 BC. It's about two years after the Jews started rebuilding things in the city of Jerusalem. And in that year, as it says, you have these two men. They're Jewish men, but they have Babylonian names. Sherezer 
and Regum Melech, which tells us almost certainly they were born or they had their name changed while captives in a foreign land. And those two men and some others that are with them, they come and it says they raise a question. Verse 3, a very important question. Our entire study today is based on this question. They say this, should I, or we, I think is fair to, to insert there, should we weep and abstain in the fifth month as we have done for so many years? Again, that weeping, that abstain, abstain, abstaining, or abstaining is fasting. And they fasted, as you can see there, in the fifth month. That was the same month that the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians, and much of Jerusalem was burned by the Babylonians. We know that 2 Kings 25 teaches us that. This is a very uh, good chapter for us to sort of jump all over for the historical information that is just sort of given in this chapter as if we would know it. And so 2 Kings chapter 25, it tells us this. Now, on the seventh day of the fifth month in the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem. And every important building was destroyed or was burnt down there. Notice, on the seventh day of the fifth month. In this chapter, and in the next one, you're going to see three additional fasts that the Jewish people were keeping are mentioned. We'll look at them very quickly. Look at verse, chapter 7, verse 5. It says, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month. So we already knew about the fifth. Now we're learning here about the, the seventh month. Look at chapter 8, verse 19 mention of additional fasts are made there. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth month and the fast of the seventh month and the fast of the tenth month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness. And so there's four feasts that the Jewish people introduced, one in the fourth, one in the fifth, one in the seventh, and one in the tenth month. That's a lot of time of somber periods of mourning. And it's a lot of going without food, if you ask me. Uh, every month, it seems, we're doing this again. Now, none of those feasts were mandated by the law of Moses. These were all practices adopted by the Jewish people. It doesn't make them right, doesn't make them wrong, but they were not mandated by the law of Moses. In fact, the only mandated feast, according to the law of Moses, is the one that occurs on the Day of Atonement. All the others uh, that they had added over the years were ones that they chose to add. And since the fall of Jerusalem to those Babylonians, the Jews in exile, they added these four additional feasts. And they were meant to commemorate significant events in the history of the Jewish people as it related to the Babylonians and their experience with the Babylonians. So we've already learned that the feast of the fifth month commemorates the destruction of the temple and the burning of Jerusalem. Again, 2 Kings chapter 25 told us that. The next feast, sort of in this order, would be the feast in the seventh month. And if you're interested, you can go. Chapter 41 talks about it. It's the assassination of Jerusalem's appointed governor. It's a guy by the name of Gedaliah, and Gedaliah uh, and 80 additional men with him were killed right outside of the temple area, and that's the feast that's going to be celebrated in the seventh month. The third in those series of feasts commemorating these events is the one that takes place in the tenth month. 
And that coincides with the start of the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem as they surrounded the city to go in. That's 2 Kings chapter 25 also. And then the last of the four feasts chronologically would come first in your given calendar year, but it goes all the way back to the fourth. So you have the fifth, the seventh, the tenth, back to the fourth, and then you start all over again, if that makes sense. And that's in Jeremiah chapter 25, and that's the final capture of the city. And so you have all of these key events, which were mourn, events that in their history that they would mourn, and they developed these fasts to commemorate those events. And they were keeping that, these fasts for, it seems, at least 70 years. And perhaps the 10 years or so, they're back in the land for about 15 years. So 70, 80, 85 years or so, they've been keeping these fasts. And so here they are now, they're back in the land. They're rebuilding the temple. They're about halfway done in the fourth year of Darius. They're rebuilding the temple. They're starting to rebuild the city of Jerusalem a little bit. And now people begin to wonder, do we need to continue to fast, mourning the destruction of the city when the city's being rebuilt right back in front of us? Verse 3 says, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? I think it's a reasonable question. It's also a question that we'll see that Zechariah never gives a direct answer to. Don't you love that? He's like one of those like good counselors that, and what do you think would be the problem? You know, they, they ask you another question. And so Zechariah then doesn't really give a direct answer to the question. They say, should we continue to keep the fast? The direct response would be, yes, no. You know, that, that's a direct response. He doesn't give them a direct response. Instead, we go to verse 4. He says this, 5. He says, say to all the people of the land and the priest, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh month for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous with their cities all around her and the south and the lowland when they were inhabited? And so God's speaking then through the prophet Zechariah. He doesn't answer whether or not that they should stop fasting or not. But instead he inquires uh, from them why they were fasting to begin with. So should we or shouldn't we? That's not the question I want to ask. The question I want to ask is, why were you doing it to begin with? Was it for me that you were doing it, he says? Was it, when they fasted, was it for God or for some other reason? When they fasted, was it to force his hand so that they, they, he would get them out of Babylon and end their suffering? Is that why they did it? Was it for God or to force his hand? God, I fasted all day. You have to answer my prayers now. Was it for God or that they might see this period of humiliation uh, in the foreign land come to a close? So what Zechariah, God speaking through Zechariah does, is he checks what their real motivation was in fasting anyway, in fasting as they did here, as it says, for so many years. And then he goes on and he poses another question. I'm sure they're wondering, oh man, I'm sorry we asked. Uh, it was just easier to fast. He poses another question in verse 6. And so he says, uh, did you fast really for me when you fasted? And then in verse 6 he says, and when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? 
Now, eating and drinking is not like the normal, you're at home, you're eating and drinking. This refers to the feasting. And so when you come to the temple and you have your big feast, was that for me or was that for you? So you fast, but for whom? You feast, and who are you doing that for? Is it not for yourself? And so what had become evident, to God at least, is that both their feasting and their fasting were for themselves and not for God. And so what we see here is something I think that we can struggle with as well, and that's why I think it's really helpful for us to look at a passage like this. What we see is that the people were performing all of these ceremonies that God required of them and even some ceremonies that they made up for themselves, but their hearts were far from God. They weren't doing it for him. They were doing it for themselves. And so what that means is that these ceremonies become nothing more than performance, or they become nothing more than ritual. Do some things and then go out and do whatever you want to do after that because you've did your rituals. You've uh, completed your ceremony. And it's because their hearts were not right with God, which we will see as we go a little further in today's text, that their rituals would never be right with God either. You can do all the rituals in the world, but if your heart is far from God, they're meaningless. Another place is going to say he hates such rituals. And so we have these people of Zechariah in his day, and they're finding themselves to be in the same place that the Jewish people 70, 80, 85 years earlier were, those that were sent off into captivity. That's why it says in verse 7, were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and Jerusalem was uh, prosperous with her cities all around her in the south and the lowland when they were inhabited? They were performing their rituals, but their hearts were far from God, just as their ancestors did 70, 80, 90, 100 years earlier. And he draws their attention to those Jews that came before them and those Jews that uh, they had their sort of pre-Babylonian invasion. They obeyed in some regards. But when the prophets called them and said, no, it's about your heart. Where's your heart? They missed the mark. And so we want to have a fa- we want to keep fasting to remember the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. The response is essentially, look, instead of actively remembering the sin and the tragedy of the past, what God would prefer is that instead of actively remembering that, that they actively walk in obedience. That's what he would prefer. I'd rather not have any fast, but have you obey me and walk in my ways. Because God is not content with mere ceremonial acts. And whether it's regular fasting, which I hate, (laughs) whether it's giving, whether it's church attendance, whether it's serving in some way, or even things like, you know, I get up every day and I read my Bible and I pray. If your heart is far from God, and yet you're still doing those things and checking them off, and then going out and living for yourself, God's not content with that. I referenced earlier this quote. This is from the book of Acts. It says this, I hate, I despise, this is God speaking, my goodness. I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fatted uh, animals there, calves there, I will not look upon them. 
take away from me the noise of your songs. But we're singing worship songs to you. Yeah, but your heart is so far away, it's just noise. It's just noise, he says. This is what he instead wants. Verse 24, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Because if those acts are not preceded and accompanied by a genuine love for God and for others, well, the Lord is content to let those practices go by the wayside. Stop fasting. Stop going to church. Stop reading your Bible. If you're going to think you can live two different lives, but because you did some ritual that everything is okay. I'm not interested in that, he says. I'm interested in what is really going on in your heart. Well, it goes on in verse 8. And there he's going to begin to address some of those injustices that he mentions there in 7. And so it says this, Now the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. That's what God's asking for. Notice verse 11, but they, now we're talking about, that was the message delivered to their ancestors of old. And how did they respond? But they refused to pay attention, and they turned a stubborn shoulder, and they stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. And I called, and they would not hear. So they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus all the land that left, they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land of Israel was made desolate. So he challenged the people in verse 7 about their lack of obedience. And here now in verses 8 and 9, he describes the kind of obedience that he is looking for from them. You can see it there. Again, the point, rather than merely doing religious exercises, in this case fasting, what he really wanted to see from them is that they render true just judgments, justice. They treat one another properly with justice, not who's more important or more powerful or more rich or whatever it might be, render true judgments. Two, he talks about showing kindness and mercy to one another, that they abstain from oppressing, and there's a whole pe bunch of people listed, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the poor, that they abstain from oppressing the weak person, and that they stop the practice of devising evil against one another in their hearts. That's what he's truly calling them to. And so you imagine the picture. They go to synagogue, they church, whatever. They go there. They learn a nice message. And then they, they leave and they start ripping people off. They, they go to a nice church service. They go down to the diner. And then they run out on their bill. They dash and dine or whatever the phrase is here. Like, what are you doing? Like, th these two things don't go together. But Lord, I, I fasted for you. I went to church for you. I read my Bible this morning for you but you ran out on your bill at the diner. Like, how, how do those, do that first. Pay your bill. And then we can look at some of this other stuff that you need to do. That makes sense, right? Well, that, thank you. That's what God is saying to them. 
So they're fasting and doing all that other stuff, while at the same time their heart is really far away. And God says, look, forget the rituals. What I really want from you right now, show mercy to other people and compassion to other people, especially the weakest among you that can't do anything to you if you don't. Show kindness and mercy to those folks. Now, this is not to say that ritual is wrong in and of itself. Ritual's fine, but only if it's accompanied by the reality of relationship. That's what God is really looking for. And sadly, that's what the pre-Babylonian Jews failed to comprehend. And as it says there, God reached out to them. We've been looking at He sent prophet after prophet after prophet to them. He reached out to them. He allowed smaller measures of discipline, sort of smacked them on the hand. Ooh, that hurt. Yes, it should have hurt. Wake up. Oh, yeah, sorry. You remember, like, people used to do this. Don't do it. But someone's freaking out, and they slap them across the face. Oh, thank you. Like the movie Airplane. Remember the movie Airplane? They did that. They woke the guy up, and I'm back. I'm back. Thank you. I needed that. Well, God did that with smaller measures of discipline, but they refused to listen. And finally, it got to this point where God took his hand of blessing and protection from them. He allowed them to be, as it says in the verse, scattered uh, in, the, in the whirlwind to the nations, to, among the Gentiles, it says there. Because as God was trying to get their attention and bring them back, their response was essentially this. Look, don't talk to me. That, this is what they're saying. We don't want to talk about heart posture. Just give us some t- rituals to do. And we'll call it even, God. I'll do that for you, and you'll be happy with me. And the Lord says, no, I'm not, I'm not interested in that. And so he's calling to them. They're not listening. As it says in verse 11, they refuse to pay attention. It t- goes on. It says they turned a stubborn shoulder. It says they stopped their ears that they might not hear. And then it goes on, and it says there in verse 12, and they made their hearts diamond hard. You see there sort of that progression of rejection. It began with them refusing to pay attention to God. Then they turned a stubborn shoulder. The idea, I'm told, the picture is they went, I don't care. I don't care. They raised their shoulders. They turn away from what God wants to say to them. Then they stop their ears like they're five. All right? And they stop their ears. And what is the end result of all of that? Their hearts become diamond hard, it says. And that's a scary place to be. And it's a very important warning, I think, for each one of us. Here's my goal for myself personally. I want to run my race and come to the end of it not having forsaken the Lord. That's my goal for my walk with Jesus. And if that's 80 years that I live here on this earth or 60 years or whatever it might be, that's my goal. And I just want to run my race. And so this is an important lesson because I'm running it today. I want to keep running it over the next 30 years or whatever it is that God has for me. And so I want to look at something like this, and I imagine you do as well, and say, okay, what was the progression of rejection for these folks here? Well, it started with them simply refusing to pay attention to God, no longer picking up their word. When God's Holy Spirit puts a a conviction about something in your lives, you ignore that conviction. I understand God, but look, I've obeyed you in like 80 other things. Uh, Like, I'm not giving you this one too. You refuse to pay attention. You kind of shrug your soldiers. I know what it says, but I don't really care, or I'm not interested, or that was a long time ago. Those things matter, or I'm a lot more mature now. 
than I was when I first became a Christian, so I don't need to pay attention to these things. Be careful, because as you continue to reject God and stop paying attention to God and shut up your ears so you can't hear God, the end result becomes your heart, you run the risk of your heart becoming diamond hard. You think of Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. And as God kept sending Moses to Pharaoh, go to Pharaoh, tell him, let my people go. And Moses would go, and Pharaoh would be like, no way, I'm not going to do that. And there was a plague, and Pharaoh's like, I'm so sorry. Your people can go. Next day, he changes his mind. Same thing happens again, again, and again, and again, 10, 12 times. And each time, it talks about Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He refused to pay attention. He shrugged his shoulders. He stopped his ears. And then at the conclusion of it, it says, and God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He gave him over to what he wanted. God hardened his heart so that Pharaoh couldn't hear. And Pharaoh was Pharaoh's decision that killed so many millions of his own people as they chased the children of Israel into the Red Sea and perished there. So the Lord says in verse 13, As I called, and they would not hear, so they called, and I would not hear, says the Lord. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left <coughs> was desolate, so that no one went to and fro when the pleasant land was made desolate. That scattering, with uh, scattering them among the nations, that's the exile that we're referring to. Notice this, their disobedience, their rejection of God and what he was trying to say to them. It says in verse 13, it led to their prayers going unanswered. The people refused to listen to God, and he, he refused to listen to them. He, their prayers went unanswered. So the question that we come back to is the one that we began with. Should we fast or not? Well, they're, again, they're not given a direct answer, but they are given two responses. Should we fast or not? Well, God says, that depends on why you're fasting to begin with. Should we fast or not? God says, well, what I really want from you is that you put away your hypocrisy. That's what I'm really looking for you, from you. And through Zechariah, God's going to give four total responses. That's the first two. Why are you fasting to begin with? I'd rather you put away your hypocrisy, and then we could talk about fasting. Responses three and four are going to come in the next chapter. chapter it begins in chapter 8. It says, now the word of the Lord came, uh, word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord? Thus says the Lord of hosts. Notice how many times that's said uh, in uh, these two chapters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and righteousness. It's important to understand that even while the Jews were in exile, no one desired more for Jerusalem to be rebuilt and thrive once again, and its people to thrive in that city than the Lord himself. 
And that's why he says in verse 2 there, he says, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy. Or your version might say, use the word zealous for Zion. It's an interesting word that is used there. It, it's a word which means to become red in the face. And so there's something stirring within God, the emotion within God, that he became, if you will, red in the face with deep emotion. That's how intensely God cared for his people and for his holy city, and that's how much he longed for the city to be restored. And so we have this fast that is inquiring about, uh, that commemorated the destruction of the city. Now they want to know if they should continue looking back to that dreadful event. God says, you know what, why don't we do this? Why don't we look forward to a blessed event. You want to look, keep looking back, let's look forward here. And so speaking of Jerusalem, verse 3, he says, Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and it shall be called the faithful or the truthful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. There was a day, yet future, to Zechariah and all of them, when Jerusalem would be transformed, where it would once again be a city of truth, it would be the, and Jerusalem's a city up on a mountain there, it would be the Mount of Holiness. And the transforming factor, we are told in this verse, verse 3, he says, I have returned to Zion, that's another name for Jerusalem, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. That's the transforming factor, his presence. Not their fast, but it's his presence. And when God's presence is real in our lives, it transform us, transforms us. I think I said uh, two weeks ago, as I, we were leaving, I encouraged each of us, this week, in kind of a special way, look to practice the presence of God this week. Because that's the transforming thing that happens in our lives. As we're practicing and we're aware of his presence, and so God would be in the midst. And notice how it changes the city. It starts in verse 4. It says, and old men and old women will sit again in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. The staff in hand is essentially like a cane of some sorts. The more important point that is made there is that there will be a safety in the city. There are parts in our communities or around here where, you know, it's about to get dark, get in your house. Because who knows what those crazies are going to do, you know, to you or whatever it might be. And this is speaking the exact opposite of it. There will just be this peace that is in the city. The people will live out their days to the, the age they get where they're going to need a cane of some sorts, and they'll be comfortably able to sit in the streets of Jerusalem. It talks about the children being able to play in the streets and run around and not have to worry that someone's going to kidnap them or whatever it might be. I remember one of my greatest experiences as a kid is when we would play out on the street and then the cars would come and everyone, car! And you had to move, you know, the garbage cans or whatever that were the goals for the sport you were playing. That day will be experienced by these kids, just able to go out in peace and in safety and play in the streets. Now, in Zechariah's day, that was unthinkable. And so he says in the next verse, I guess it's verse 6, he says this, look, if this is marvelous in your sight, put a different word, like, if you're having trouble believing that that day will come, if it's marvelous in your sight, should it be marvelous in my sight? Should it be unbelievable in my sight, unthinkable in my sight, the Lord says there? It seemed too good to be true for them, but that didn't mean it was therefore an impossibility for God. 
He goes on in verse 7. He said, you think that was unbelievable, that old people are going to be out on the road and kids are going to be playing and, and stuff like that? You think that's crazy? Look at this, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. And I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. And remember the context. In Zechariah's day, the estimates that I have seen is anywhere from 2 to 10% of the people returned to Jerusalem. Darius the king, Medo-Persians, you can go back to Jerusalem if you want. You'll still be my subjects, but you can go and do it from there. And only about, at the most that I've seen, 10% of the people, we know it's 50,000 people, a little less than that, came back to Jerusalem. And here now it is saying it's going to be filled. People from the east country, the west country are going to come back. Old people are going to be sitting out on the road. Young kids are going to be running around dodging those old people. It's going to be a glorious day. And in that glorious day that the Lord is looking forward to, he says, I will save my people. He talks about there this conversion, if you will, of heart. That it'll be a people that are living there in faithfulness and in righteousness. That's even more impressive that there's a lot of people, that their hearts were turned. And so these opening verses then of chapter 8, we know that they had a partial fulfillment in Zechariah's day. Even as the building of the temple was a partial fulfillment of some of the prophecies and the visions that God gave to Zechariah. But it looks forward 2,500 years at least into the future. And so these prophecies then, or these promises, they look past the closing years of the Old Testament. Zechariah and Malachi, those books. They look past that intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament. They look past the coming of Christ and the rejection of the Christ by the Jewish people, primarily most of the Jewish people, particularly the leaders. They look past the 2,000 years of church history, and they look forward even beyond our day to a, a glorious age of Christ, his glorious return, his second coming, his establishing of his kingdom in righteousness upon the earth from Jerusalem, where he will rule and he will reign for 1,000 years. We call that the millennial kingdom. Ultimately, that's what is being spoken of here through Zechariah. They're looking forward to that glorious day where God will pour out his blessing upon his nation, upon his people. The passage goes on, verse 9. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before these days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out and came in. For I said every man against his neighbor, but now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit. The ground shall give its produce. The heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all of these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hand be strong. Now remember back with me in our study of the book of Haggai. That was just the previous book that we did. Remember, Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They're, they're tag-teaming in ministry at the same exact time to the same group of people. 
And in the book of Haggai, we learned as they were working on the rebuilding of this temple that the older people that saw the previous temple and how wonderful it was were discouraged. It says in Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Isn't it not as nothing in your eyes now? That was the, that discouraged people. And then they were discouraging the younger people. They're like, this is great. we got a great building. No, this building's not very good. You should have seen it before. And then they were ministered to. We, we spent our time with it. It's that same group of people here in verse uh, 9 that are being referenced. So in verse 9, he says, Let your hand be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words, from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid that the temple might be built. They were discouraged. He's encouraging them to be encouraged. Speaking through Zechariah, he says to them in verse 9, let your hands be strong. They've been working now for about two years to rebuild this temple, but there was still two more years, we know, of work to do. They're only about halfway done. He says, let your hands be strong. When they began this process, conditions were bad. Resources were scarce. They were non-existent, actually. It says there in verse 10, there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Opposition was many. It talks about there not being any safety from the foe. And so it, I look at it, no wonder the people were growing discouraged. No wonder they were weary in doing well. But look at verse 11. This is like your Bible in a nutshell. You could summarize like all the stories with this phrase. It begins in verse 11, but now. That's the message of the gospel. But now. I was a sinner. I disobeyed God in his ways. There was a condemnation on me because of it. But God is the way that Paul refers to it in the book of Romans. Verse 11, he says, But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declared the Lord. God allowed a period of difficulty in the lives of his people, but he would not allow that difficulty to last forever. And there would be a day in Israel's future when he would bring great prosperity again and great blessing upon his people and the nation. Verse 12 says, for there will be a sowing of peace. The vine will give its fruit, the ground will give its produce, the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all of these things. And as you have been a byword and a cursing among the nations, so will I save you, and now you will be a blessing among those nations. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. God wanted Israel to know and to place their trust in his promise of blessing. And he wanted that promise to encourage them to remain diligent in the work that they had to do. That's why it's such a good thing for us to meditate on the promises that God has for us because we know that God is faithful. And as we meditate on those promises, it's an encouragement for us to continue what it is that he has called us uh, in the here and in the now and in our present. It says the same with them. Going on in verse 14, Thus says the Lord of hosts, As I have purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not, he says. These are the things that you shall do. Verse 16. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. 
and love no false oath. For all these things, he says, I hate. So three things occur in this set of verses. First thing he does is remind them of what he had already told them concerning his ancestors and the judgment that came upon them. Remember, they did their rituals too, but their hearts were far from God, so they were empty rituals. And so the first thing he reminds them of in verse 14, as I purpose to bring disaster upon you when your fathers provoked me to wrath and I did not relent. He goes on from there. Second thing he does in these verses, he reminds them once more, this is like a review of what he's already talked to them about in chapter 7 and 8. He reminds them once more of his promise of future blessing. That's in verse 15. So again, have I purposed in these days to bring good, he says. And then the third thing that he does here is he restates the definition of true religion. Now, we need to be careful with that because what we're not saying is, look, as long as you treat people with justice, as long as you're nice to people and you... You know, you don't swear, have false oaths oaths and all that, you can get into heaven. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there's nothing that we can do. There are none that are righteous to come into the presence of a holy God, but it's the work of his son who paid the penalty for our sin that we can come to in faith and appropriate that work as our own. When that has happened, these are the types of things that you should be seeing in your life. You should be a person that is marked by justice toward others. You should render true judgment toward others. You should treat the weakest among us and the most powerful among us with kindness and so on and all these other things that he is mentioning here. And so he's kind of reviewed so far in these verses here. Then having reviewed all of that, he gives the final response to the question. What was the question? You remember? Should we fast or not? No direct. Yes. No, none of those answers. Well, that depends why you're fasting, he said. Remember, he, there was already three responses. Here's now the fourth and the final response, and that is this, that there is a day coming when the fast of mourning in Israel will be transformed into feast of rejoicing. And that's found in verses 18 and 19. And it says, And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh month, and the fast of the tenth month, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. Therefore, love truth and love peace. Here's what I think the point is there. If we were going to keep these feasts for all eternity, or excuse me, keep these fast for all eternity, well, then maybe we should keep 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 the fast here for the rest of time. That makes sense, what I'm trying to say? But he says here, you're not going to remember these fasts in heaven. In heaven, each one of these fasts are going to be turned into feast. They're going to be transformed into times of celebration, he says there. He says, the fast of this month, this month, this month, and this month shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feast. He's going to do such a transformative work in the land that even their fast will be turned to feast. He goes on from there. He says, and the rundown city of God, Jerusalem, that rundown city that lay lay desolate for all those years, he says it will become the center, the world center of worship. Look at verse 20. Thus says the Lord, peoples shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities will come to Jerusalem. 
The inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, hey, let's caravan together. Let's go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. I think that's a great memory verse for each of us about inviting people into the experience that you have with God. Hey, come with me to this home group. I myself am going. You come with me. Come with me to church. I myself am going. Come with me. Anyway, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue, that refers to the Gentiles, shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. That's so great. People from every nation of the earth are going to look in that day Make, look to wait, make their way to Jerusalem so that they can see the Lord who will be in person. This is after the return of Christ in his millennial kingdom. They're going to make their way to that place to entreat the Lord for his favor. And notice this, the Jew is going to be seen as this positive resource. The Jew throughout history that has been despised and hated and increasingly in our day, we see the rise once again. I can't believe it, but we see the rise once again, again of anti, like blatant anti-Semitism in our society and on the, our college campuses and the like and in, throughout our culture. Well, the Jew in that day will be looked upon by the, the Gentiles, the nations, if you will, as the Lord's ambassador. Look at verse 23. It tells us that all these nations and these people, they will grab the, the coat or the, the robe, the jacket of a Jew. Anyone that they can find, they'll beg them, would you please take me to Jerusalem? Would you take me there? Let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. And finally, and eternally, Israel will have become that lampstand that God designed them to be. You remember our study of chapter, I think it was chapter 4, when they were supposed to be, there was that vision of the lampstand that was fed by the, the olive oil trees that were there, and we talked about how that was a picture of what God had for Israel to be, uh, a lampstand that would give light to the whole world and draw people to God. Jesus uses the reference in the New Testament, a different one. He talks about the believer being that city upon a hill, that the light of which can't be hidden, that people would be drawn to it. They will finally be that, become that lampstand meant to give light to the world and be a light that draws all nations to their God. Because in that day, it will be known that the Jews have once again found favor with God. And it will be known that where God can be found. And that'll be a glorious day. It'll actually be 360,000 glorious days. 1,000 years, three, probably a 360-day years as the Jewish calendar used to follow. And it'll be a glorious day. But in the meantime, as we leave here, may we be those that others look to and say, hey, we have heard that God is with you. Can you bring me to him? May we be those that others tug on our shirt sleeve and they ask us that we might take them to the place where they too can meet God. And it's not necessarily here. That's not what I'm suggesting. But you can take them to that place. And of course, that place is the foot of the cross. As people look at your life, they see your life, they see how you respond to things, they see that your life is so much more, it's not just ritual, but that you are the same person whether you're sitting in a church room or of so, sorts like this 
where you're dealing with a frustrating circumstance out there that you're the same person in those situations and they see something about you and they're drawn to you and they say, you seem to know God. Would you take me to him? And the place you're going to bring them is to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, it talks about here that all these people are going to grab the, the shirt of, one, of the Jew to take them there. Well, we grab the shirt of a Jew as well, don't we? The Jew that lived in a little tiny village named Nazareth. And he is the way we get to God. And I encourage you, turn people to the Lord. Let them see your light so shine among men that they may glorify your Father in heaven. Point them to Jesus. Sound good? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. I think we could all, every one of us that is presently a believer here, we can think of that person in our lives that welcomed us to come with them that that we might meet Jesus. And Lord, I'm so glad of that experience in my life, Lord. And Lord, we just pray that you might count us worthy to be that person in the lives of others as well. And we, Lord, Lord, we know that it's not going to be because we go to church a lot or because we are out serving in some way and that others might see or because they come to our house and they see a Bible on an end table. But the only thing that's going to draw people to you is that we have been with you. I think of the book of Acts when they took note that these disciples had been with Jesus. And so, Lord, as we uh, once more this week, we leave this place and we, we seek to practice your presence as we go from here. Lord, I just ask for a special blessing on this congregation today. Lord, that you would bless us with opportunities to tell others. People would inquire I think of your word, Lord, I think it was to Timothy or Peter, where it says, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. And so, Lord, open up those opportunities. Use us in the lives of others. Be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name.